are listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host. I'm Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University. Thanks for listening to Understanding Christianity. It's been a while since I've done a standalone podcast. Sometimes the summers have been a little bit crazy. But before we begin this podcast, I do want to let you be aware of the release of my new book. It came out a few months ago through G3. I'm thankful for G3 Ministries and G3 Press. The name of the book is 40 Days in Philippians, Finding Joy in Jesus. It is a daily devotional that will help you understand the depths of the book of Philippians. It's more than just kind of a trite, little, fluffy devotional, but it actually is expository. It goes in-depth into the book of Philippians, but it's also um, going to give you opportunities to worship and to pray and to, and to help you in your spiritual growth. So you can go to the show notes and find that link to G3 Press, and I'd love for you to check out my new book, 40 Days in Philippians. I do want to interact with latent flowers and provisionism. As many of my listeners know, this tends to be something that I delve into from time to time. Uh, those that hold to provisionism theology tend to think that I, at least hopefully accurately, at times represent their theology. And so I'm going to be interacting with about, this is about five minutes of a clip that I pulled from one of uh, Soteriology 101's YouTube clips that came out a few weeks ago, dealing with the issue of uh, reprobation and God's decree. And, and Leighton Flowers is interacting with another Calvinist um, who has presented some views, and so he'll reference that um, other gentleman in this clip. I'm not so interested in what the other gentleman had to say. I'm more interested in what Leighton had to say. But let's just begin by listening to his argumentation and find out exactly what he's dealing with so that we can interact with his um, understanding or his argument against um, the, the Calvinistic view of reprobation and God's decree. So let's listen to hear what he has to say. That's why we know Calvinism is wrong. It intuitively tells us it is wrong to judge somebody for something they have absolutely no control over. And that's what Calvinism's entire systematic is based upon. God ultimately condemning people for something they are born unable to control whatsoever. And a Calvinist really can't contend with that, not if they're being intellectually honest, within the confines of their own system. Because ultimately, if you believe T is true, you are born, according to the doctrine of original sin as they propose it, that we are born guilty because of what Adam did, and therefore um, also not only guilty, but unable to confess our guilt, even in light of the law and the gospel. And there is absolutely no hope. Christ didn't come to die for them. Um, they have no willingness to come, even when called by the gospel, because of the nature they were born with that they have no control over. Again, they have no more control of the content of the character than they do the color of their skin. And all right, let's, so let's, let's stop there and let's interact with what he is saying based upon his understanding of uh, the doctrine of God's decree. And so what he is basically arguing is this. He, he basically argues that one of the fundamental problems with Calvinism is that it makes God unjust to condemn sinners for being born with a condition of total inability over which they have no control to do otherwise. Um, basically, he argues it's intuitively unjust. Later on, he's going to call it irrational for God to hold sinners accountable for a condition that he ordained them to have. Now, 
as we interact with provisionist theology, let's talk about the assertions or the assumptions or the, the viewpoints that Leighton Flowers and other provisionists bring to the discussion when um, arguing or debating about these topics. So one of the first things that he does is that he truncates conversion. And, and I've seen Leighton do this many times where his understanding of conversion is basically truncated to merely admitting or confessing that we're guilty. His argument against total depravity and total inability is that we don't even have the ability to admit or confess our guilt. Yes, we are guilty, but that doesn't mean that we don't have the ability to confess that guilt. So basically, he says it doesn't make sense to be totally unable to admit guilt just because we are guilty of sin. And again, he concedes that we're guilty, but he never answers the nature of that guilt, rendering us unable to repent and believe. So conversion is not admitting or confessing that we have a problem. That's part of, that's part of conversion. Yes, through the work of the Holy Spirit's conviction, through irresistible grace, through sovereign um, regeneration, through the effectual call, the Holy Spirit does make us aware of our sin. But true conversion is not just admitting that we're guilty. It's actually a change of heart wrought by the Holy Spirit deep in our souls where he actually changes that nature, where he actually overcomes that spiritual deadness and grants us the ability to actually repent because we've have, we have a change of heart and to trust in Jesus alone for salvation. And so he's going to talk about why we're judged. So let's, let's continue listening and talk about his understanding of judgment and in relationship to Adam, especially um, Adam's sin. So let's continue listening here. And therefore, we know intuitively it is wrong to judge people for something for which they have absolutely no control. And on Calvinism, that is the entire basis of their worldview. God decreed for all men, because of Adam's fall, all men would be condemned and under the curse and condemnation of that first sin. And not only that, further, they can't even confess that sin. They can't even confess the sin that their father did, that their grandfather did, even when confronted with the appeal of gospel calling them to be reconciled from their fallen condition. They have no capacity to willingly accept that. They don't want to, and they will never want to because of the nature they were born with by divine sovereign decree. It's not an accident. God didn't go, oops, I, I, man, I didn't know that would happen with the fall. Calvinists would never say something like that. Everything on Calvinism happens in accordance with God's will and his purpose and his plan. He planned and purposed that as a result of the fall, all of humanity would be punished with this, 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 this condition from birth, this innate condition of hating God from birth and rejecting even his appeals to be reconciled. That is beyond our control on Calvinism. And yet God judges men for their lack of willingness to come and their sin, even though they could not have done otherwise. That is the problem with the Calvinistic system. But the way they word this... Okay, let's stop right there. That's the problem with the Calvinistic system. Now, he said a lot of things there, and we're going to continue to interact with what he's saying. So, why are we judged? Why are we condemned? That's a good question to ask. And there's a difference of, of, of understanding in the Reformed understanding of that versus the provisionist understanding of that. 
what actually brings condemnation? Well, we would have basically three answers to this in Reformed theology. Number one, sinners are judged or condemned for Adam's sin in the garden because he is our federal head. So what Adam did in the garden as our representative, his guilt becomes our guilt, and so we are born with the guilt of Adam imputed to us. Thus, we are born already guilty for Adam's transgression in the garden. You can go back and read Romans chapter 5 and understand that. But also, we are judged or condemned for the sin nature that we are born with, inherited from Adam. So not only are we condemned for Adam's sin, we're also condemned for the original sin that we have inherited from Adam that we are born with. We are totally depraved. We were brought forth in iniquity, so we are condemned for that. But in addition to that, we are judged for the actual sins that we commit. So we commit actual sins because of our nature. Our nature comes first. We are born with a sinful nature inherited from Adam, and that nature leads us to commit sins. Now, in provisionist theology, they have a different understanding of this. They would believe that we are only judged for the sins that we actually commit. Not necessarily judged for the nature or even judged for Adam's sin, but only for the sins that we ourselves have committed. Now, The second thing that Leighton Flowers denies is God's decree. God decreeing the fall. That all men would be born with original guilt and total inability. And his argument is that they can't even respond to the gospel appeal to be saved. So there's a lot of denials in provisionism. They deny total inability. They denied God's sovereign decree in ordaining the fall, and they deny any type of supernatural or what they would call mystical grace needed to overcome that condition. So this is very crucial for you to understand, and I know I have many new listeners to the podcast. Some of you have been listening with me for the past seven or eight years. You've heard me say this over and over again. You need to understand one of the key planks in provisionist theology, and it is this that the gospel appeal is the sufficient, and that's the key word, sufficient grace needed to enable a positive response. And the corollary to that is there's a denial of total inability from birth. So those two things go together. If you deny total inability or spiritual deadness that renders sinners unable spiritually and morally to repent and believe then you also have to believe that there is no need for an internal, regenerative, effectual, irresistible grace by the Holy Spirit to overcome that condition. So what all is needed is the mere gospel appeal. Because you are not totally unable. You are stained by sin. You are impacted by sin. But you are not spiritually dead in sin so as to be unable to repent and believe. So all you need is the mere gospel appeal. When the gospel appeal comes to you through messengers that give you the gospel, when you hear the, the call to repent and believe, what we would call in Reformed theology the outward call of the gospel, when you hear the outward call, the outward call is sufficient to enable you to repent and believe. You can use your libertarian free will when the gospel appeal is outwardly given to repent and believe and trust in Christ for salvation. 
There is no internal, effectual, irresistible call or sovereign regeneration in provisionist theology. And so if I were to cross-examine Leighton and ask him some questions, these are the questions that I would ask him. And maybe on a future podcast, he could give this. I, I don't have time, to, honestly, to listen to every single Soteriology 101. Sometimes they're, they're too long. Uh, he does them almost every day. I don't have time. But let me just give you what I would do in a cross-examination. One of the questions I would ask is, did God decree the fall? Did God ordain sovereignly the fall? Or did he merely, quote-unquote, allow it to happen? And if he allowed it to happen, could Adam have chosen otherwise? Or was it God's decree for Adam to fall? And then the second question I would ask is, what's your understanding or description of that fallen nature? How do you define original sin and original guilt? This is where provisionism gets very murky, their understanding of original sin. They do believe we have some type of sin that has come from Adam, but I want to understand what's the nature of that sin. What did Adam in the garden do that impacts us today? What role does Adam's sin play in your theology of sin? And so what's the alternative to God planning or purposing the fall? Okay, so if God did not have a sovereign decree for the fall to happen, and God did not sovereignly decree the results of the fall, and God did not sovereignly decree the nature that human beings would have as a result of the fall, and God does not sovereignly decree how he overcomes the effects of the call through sovereign regeneration, then what's the alternative to that? Well, the answer would be libertarian free will. God allows things to happen. Humans can choose otherwise. Now, let's continue listening to his understanding of this whole idea of reprobation. Is they make it sound as if he's just leaving them in their natural state. Okay, he's just leaving them to do what they already want to do. What's that mean, though? What is their natural state? We don't believe in Mother Nature. So what is their natural state? The state that God himself decreed for them to be born in. That's what they mean by that. And so you've got to kind of look behind the curtain. You gotta look, what, what do they mean when they say these things? Because it sounds uh, much more plausible to say, well, oh, well, he's just leaving them to do what they want to. Oh, he's just leaving them to act in accordance with their nature. And what caused their nature to be that way? God's sovereign decree. God judging them for what Adam did and condemning them for that to the point where they can't even respond to his own appeals to be reconciled from that sin. That's what you've got to be really clear. Again, some doctrinal systems don't have to be refuted. They just have to be clearly stated. And I don't think Calvinism right now is being very clearly stated. Okay, let's just stop right there and um, interact again with some of his statements. His understanding of reprobation, um, he does not go into, at least in this video, a clear understanding of the doctrine of reprobation. And so I, I would just, I, I want to understand how he understands the, the, the non-elect or the issue of those whom God has not chosen. And we're going to deal with that as we get further in the podcast. But here's his argument. Let's just restate it. Let's hopefully uh, understand where he's coming from. Um, he argues that um, if God, if the understanding of reprobation is God leaving sinners in their natural state, 
he says that's problematic because even if you hold to God leaving sinners in their natural state and punishes them for that natural state, his argument is that God decreed that state. God decreed that that sinner would be in that state and that sinner could not choose otherwise. Therefore, again, that makes God unjust to reprobate sinners for something they cannot control, something they're born with, and God would judge them for a sinful condition by birth over which they had no choice because it's all based upon God's sovereign decree. So again, there's a denial of a sovereign decree. There's a denial of total inability. There's a denial of irresistible grace. So let's look at the flip side of that. And what does provisionism hold to? Provisionism holds to the corporate view of election. They don't hold to God having a sovereign decree whereby all things come to pass based upon his good pleasure and will. It's more God merely allowing things to happen. There's contra-causal free will. There is a corporate view of election. You choose to get into Christ based upon your libertarian free will. And when you choose to get into Christ by your own faith, you're placed among the elect. That elect group was chosen before the foundation of the world. Christ is the elect one chosen before the foundation of the world. But you get into that by your libertarian free will. It is a conditional election. You meet the conditions of your own libertarian free will, choosing Christ to be placed in faith, and then you get into the pre-selected group called the elect. And because there is no total inability in provisionism theology, you can merely listen to the gospel appeal and choose to either reject Christ or accept Christ. You have contra-causal free will, and the gospel appeal is the sufficient grace needed to enable a positive response. There is no need for an internal, supernatural, mystical, mysterious, whatever word you want to use, work directly on the soul of a sinner by the Holy Spirit to bring about the change of heart. The heart of flesh becoming, or the heart of stone becoming a heart of flesh, being made alive, being born again. In other words, in Reformed theology, regeneration comes before faith. We respond in faith as a result of being born again. In provisionism theology, you have libertarian free will. And so, here's the bottom line in their viewpoint, in what he's arguing. For God to have a sovereign, unchangeable decree whereby all things come to pass, and that all things come to pass includes the fall of Adam. It includes our sinful nature that we're born with by decree. The election of certain individuals to salvation, predestination, the passing over of others, reprobation, and the future judgment. If all that is unchangeable and nobody can do otherwise, and they're born in that condition by God's decree, his argument is, that is unjust, that is irrational, and we intuitively know so because sinners would be condemned for nature over which they could not change or do otherwise. And therefore, God must be unfair to hold them accountable for something they can't change. So let's continue listening, and then I want us to give a biblical understanding of the doctrine of reprobation. So let's keep listening to his argument. Um, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be mean to Dr. Brooks, but he's not laying out for his audience that clarity to help them to understand that this doctrine of reprobation is not just God leaving them to do what they naturally want to do. No, it is God um, decreeing 
that their desires and their nature is such that they will always reject even the appeal of the gospel. And they could not have done otherwise because God ultimately rejected them before they were ever born. God reprobated them before they were born. If people are taught that clearly, this is what Calvinism entails, I think most people who are spirit-filled will go, wait a second, that, that's not right. <laughs> that, are you sure that's what the Bible says? Is there a better interpretation than that one? Is there? Okay, let's stop right there. I, you know, this is a, an appeal to a little bit of an emotion there by saying uh, spirit-filled believers, and I know Leighton Flowers believes that Reformed theology includes, you know, spirit-filled, but here's the, here's the issue. It's an appeal to an emotion. It's an appeal to in intuition. We must intuitively, when we hear this, if we're truly spirit-filled, if we're truly led by the Spirit, if, if we're truly understanding just the plain teaching of what Calvinism teaches, then we must intuitively come to the conclusion, this is unjust, this is not right, there's got to be something better. And so, you know, if, if we just understood what Calvinism really teaches, then everybody would reject it at face value because it is so against our intuition, against what we think is just. And we need to be careful with that type of argumentation. Just because something may be intuitive, just because something may be unjust based upon our human understanding, our fallen understanding of justice, we should not immediately and outright reject it based upon a feeling, based upon irrationality, based upon intuition. Because oftentimes there are things in the Bible that cut directly against our intuition. They're counterintuitive. They're counter what we would consider based upon justice. And so we, we really need to have the attitude that Paul gives to the interlocutor in Romans chapter 9, where Paul basically gives that argument about who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God. There are some things that we come across in the scriptures where we may want to argue against. We may think, you know, intuitively that doesn't sound right. That doesn't feel right. And just a side note here. What I'm hearing a lot, and I'm not accusing Leighton of this at all, so Leighton, if you're listening to this, I'm not accusing you of this. I'm just, this is a side note that, that I'm just popping to my mind. What I'm hearing a lot in especially evangelical Christian circles, especially among some top Southern Baptist leaders when it comes to the issue of, of women and ministry and female pastors and things like that, I'm hearing this language that this just doesn't feel right. This doesn't sit well. That's an appeal to emotion, not to the biblical text. There are many things in the Bible that don't, quote-unquote, feel right or sit well. And the question we've got to ask is, are we going to submit to the authority of what the Scripture says, regardless of how it makes us feel, or regardless of how we intuitively take it, are we willing to submit? Now, again, I'm not accusing Leighton Flowers of appealing to emotion or saying that um, we need to go by our feelings. That's not what I'm saying. But I am seeing that more and more in evangelical circles, that this just doesn't feel right. And when you base your theology on feelings, it's going to take you in a lot of wrong directions. So let's hear him close out his argumentation here. Is there an alternative interpretation? In fact, there's, there is an alternate interpretation. There's a majority alternate interpretation held to by most of the church throughout Christian history, including all of church scholars that we're aware of, prior to Augustine for the first 400 years of the Christian church. That should tell you something, okay? So Calvinists, when you're just 
just soaking in these doctrines. Just be willing to be Gaborians, just back away, put down the doctrines for a moment and go, is there a better option here? Is there another option that I at least should be open enough to consider as a possible interpretation than this concept and idea that God has ordained, decreed, sovereign and unchangeably um, brought to pass that all people are born in a condition where they can't but ex uh, reject the gospel unless supernaturally acted upon by God to cause them to do something that he ultimately supernaturally caused them to be unable to do from birth. Just ask yourself, is it rational? Is it biblical? Is it just? Is it right? And then consider the alternative interpretations that have actually been held to by a majority of Christians throughout the history of the church. Okay, so there we go. There, there's Leighton Flowers' argumentation, and, and again, he appeals to us as Calvinists to put the, 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 the lenses of a Berean on, be good Bereans, make sure we understand what we're, what we're believing, and, and to be open to other viewpoints, and, and we want to do that. We want to look at the claims of provisionism, and he makes some assertions there that the majority of the church throughout history and prior to Augustine, the first three or four hundred years of Christian history, held to a different viewpoint. It wasn't until Augustine came along that we had this whole issue of God's sovereign election and predestination, and there's a better view. Now, I will leave this to another day for Leighton to present the positive view. One of the things that provisionism does often is it counteracts Calvinism or Reformed theology, but oftentimes it lacks the exegetical robustness to defend or to present the, the affirmative or the positive view. And so in being fair to Leighton in this clip, he says there's a better alternative view. In that 12-minute clip, he doesn't give it, and I'm not going to um, address the positive view he gives because maybe he's given it somewhere else. So I want to give him the benefit of the doubt in saying, that he's presented the alternative view. But what I want to do in the rest of this podcast is talk about the doctrine of reprobation in God's decree. Because that's really the argument is that God in reprobating or passing over sinners who are left in their fallen condition, a condition that was ordained by God, and if God ordains all things that come to pass, then it's irrational, it's unjust, and it's just intuitively wrong for God to hold people accountable for something over which they have no control, and God ordained for them to have that condition. So that is his argument. Let's talk about the biblical doctrine of reprobation for the rest of this podcast. So what does the Bible say about this doctrine of reprobation? Well, let's start with what the Bible clearly teaches about election or predestination. Uh, the Bible clearly teaches the doctrine of election and predestination. Uh, I've done John 6 many times. But uh, John 6, 35-38, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You can listen to many podcasts I've done on John 6, but let me just give you the basic idea here. Why were these Jews not believing in Jesus when he was right before their eyes doing miracles in the flesh with the feeding of the 5,000? The answer is they were not given to Jesus by the Father. The elect, the chosen, are given to Jesus by the Father and they alone will come to Jesus in saving faith. All the Father gives to me will come. Not might come, not may come. They will come. 
Why will they come? Because they have been given before the foundation of the world by the Father to Jesus. And this is called the covenant of redemption in covenant theology. Again, you can go listen to a previous podcast I did a few years ago on the covenant of redemption. It is the, the pre-temporal or the, or, the, or the covenant made between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before the foundation of the world to elect a certain number of people, and the Father gave those people to Jesus. Jesus uh, specifically died for those people on the cross, and the Holy Spirit in time will apply the um, atonement to those people in sovereign regeneration. But this leaves us with a logical conclusion. There must also be those who were not given to Jesus by the Father, and as a result, they will never come to him in faith. So there are those who are not the sheep, not the elect, not given. They will not come in faith. Acts 13, 48 When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Notice why they believed. The reason they believed is because they were already appointed to eternal life. They weren't appointed to believe, although they did. They were appointed to eternal life. God had sovereignly chosen them before the foundation of the world, and when the gospel came to them, they believed because they were already appointed. This also shows that there must be some who were not appointed to eternal life, and therefore they would not believe. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Again, there must be some who were not chosen before the foundation of the world. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Again, there must be some that were not chosen for salvation because we know that not everybody is saved. Not everybody comes. There is eternal hell for those who do not trust in Christ. And then Revelation 13, 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship it. This is in reference to the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. Now, let's, let's just talk about a starting point that reform theology and provisionism have. And basically all Bible-believing evangelicals. All Bible-believing evangelicals believe that there are those who are saved and those who are unsaved or lost, and that God makes a choice. God predestines. The issue in this is how or on what basis does God do his choosing? There are three predominant views. There's the traditional Arminian foreknowledge conditional faith view. The reason some are not chosen is because God back in in before the foundation of the world, looked down the corridors of time, and he foresaw those who would not choose him when presented the gospel. And because he foresaw them not choosing, he let them use their free will to reject or not come to faith in Christ. They did not meet the conditions of repentance and faith when God saw it, and so therefore the conditions were not met using their free will, and so God did not choose them 
he let them use their free will to remain in their sin. That's the traditional Arminian foresight view. Again, I talked about corporate election earlier. Uh, God chose a conglomerate group called the elect or the chosen before time, that there would be the church, there would be a chosen group. And in time, when the gospel is presented, a sinner can choose to accept or reject Jesus because they do have libertarian free will. And if they do accept Christ, then they are placed at that time into the elect group that was chosen. The group was chosen before the foundation of the world, but you get into the group by using your free will in time. Uh, There's necessarily not any individual unconditional election of salvation before the foundation of the world. This is still conditional election because it's based upon meeting the conditions of you using your free will. Then obviously there's the reform view that we hold to, that there is unconditional election. God, sovereignly, by the purpose of his will, chose a fixed number of individuals to be saved before the foundation of the world. There was nothing in those individuals that moved God or caused God to choose them. They did not meet any conditions like repentance and faith. It was merely God's good pleasure to save a large number that no man can count, and the rest he did not choose so all three views still have those who are not saved or not chosen the issue then becomes why now the group that is not chosen or does not come to faith in historical reform theology is called the reprobate so let's just look at some definitions from some of our doctrinal statements or confessions in Reformed theology, let's just talk about the canons of Dort, okay? This is just classic Calvinism, the canons of Dort, section 1, article 15 on reprobation. Let's just read what the articles, uh, what article 15 on reprobation, the canons of Dort say. Moreover, Holy Scripture most especially highlights this eternal and undeserved grace of our election and brings it out more clearly for us in that it further bears witness that not all people have been chosen but that some have not been chosen or have been passed by in God's eternal election. Those, that is, concerning whom God, on the basis of his entirely free, most just, irreproachable, and unchangeable good pleasure, made the following decree. What did God, what's God's decree, his unchangeable good decree? The Canons of Dort goes on to say, to leave them, in the common misery into which by their own fault they have plunged themselves, not to grant them saving faith and the grace of conversion, but finally to condemn and eternally, sleep, eternally punish those who have been left in their own way and under God's just judgment, not only for their unbelief, but also for other sins in order to display his justice. And this is the decree of reprobation, which does not at all make God the author of sin, a blasphemous thought, but rather it's fearful, irreproachable, just judge, and avenger. So the canons of Dort basically use that language to leave them in their misery, that they themselves by their own fault have plunged them. And then because of them being left in that, they are condemned to eternal punishment. And God is not unjust in doing that. God is not the author of sin in doing that even though God has a sovereign, unchangeable decree that it would happen. Let's talk about Louis Burkhoff. Louis Burkhoff, as you guys know, this listen to this podcast, one of my favorite systematic theologies. Let's hear what Louis Burkhoff has to say. Reprobation 
may be defined as that eternal decree of God whereby he has determined to pass some men by with the operation of his special grace and to punish them for their sins to the manifestation of his justice. The following points deserve special emphasis. Number one, it contains two elements. According to the most usual representation in Reformed theology, the decree of reprobation comprises two elements, namely preterition, or the determination to pass by some men, and condemnation, or the determination to punish those who are passed by for their sins. As such, it embodies a twofold purpose, A, to pass by some in the bestowal of regenerating and saving grace, and B, to assign them to dishonor and to the wrath of God for their sins. Okay, so there are two aspects in Reformed theology to the doctrine of reprobation. One is what we call preterition, and that is that God passes by or God leaves or God does not intervene in fallen humans to overcome that inability or to sovereignly choose them. He basically leaves them or passes them by. That's preteration. But there's a second aspect of reprobation. The second one is actually condemnation. Those whom are passed by, those whom are left in their state of sin, are judged for their sins, they're judged for Adam's sins, they're judged by original sin, and they will be condemned for eternity. And so, this is what Louis Burkhoff goes on to say. The doctrine of reprobation naturally follows from the logic of the situation. The decree of election inevitably implies the decree of reprobation. If the all-wise God, possessed of infinite knowledge, has eternally purposed to save some, then he ipso facto also purposed not to save others. If he has chosen or elected some, then he has by that very fact also rejected others. So it's the implication, it's the logical implication, it's the logical conclusion to the doctrine of predestination. If God has sovereignly chosen some unconditionally for salvation, then it logically follows that God has not chosen others for salvation. Now, the not choosing is the question we've got to ask. That's why the confessions, that's why the canons of Dort, that's why Louis Burkhoff uses words like pass by or leave in their state. So let's state it this way. Election to eternal life is unconditional. Reprobation is conditional. Now, what do I mean by that? Reprobation is not equal ultimacy. Now, let me define equal ultimacy because this is a term that you will often hear in Reformed theology when talking about double predestination, reprobation, equal ultimacy. I think the main reason that most people reject the doctrine of reprobation is that they conflate it or confuse it with what is called equal ultimacy. So let me give you the, the, the idea or the, the teaching of what, what, is, what, is, what do we mean when we say equal ultimacy. It's the idea that before time, God viewed humans as not yet fallen. They were morally neutral. And then he decided to infuse evil into some of them 
and then he justly punished them. In other words, God is as active in working unrighteousness into the reprobate as he is in working righteousness into the elect. Those things are perfectly symmetrical. They're equally ultimate. That's what equal ultimacy means. What I just told you. That is not the historic reformed definition of reprobation. Historic reformed theology has always taught an unequal ultimacy between election and reprobation, not equal ultimacy. Let me, let me explain this. Here's the reform view. In his predestining, God did view humans in light of their fall in Adam. God ordained the fall. God knew they would fall. God's choice of election was based upon them being not holy and blameless. And so God did not regard them as morally neutral when he chose sinners. Again, those sinners had not yet existed, but in God's mind, God is not choosing morally neutral, some morally neutral sinners to be saved, and other morally neutral sinners not to be saved. And so there's, there's no sin in the equation. But God made his choice of election based upon the fall, the effects of the fall, and, and people being born in sin. And so in the case of the elect, God, before the foundation of the world, intervened and appointed Christ as the mediator. That is, again, the covenant of redemption. In the case of those he doesn't choose, Christ is not appointed the mediator, and God leaves them in their state of sinfulness, again, that's preterition, and then condemns them based upon their sin. Now, why does God send some people to hell? This may sound like it goes against everything that I've said up to this point, but let me just give you some reformed theology. Uh, Siri, I'm not sure what you're, what you're talking about there. Oh, it's coming through my, f- my watch. Siri, I'm not talking to you. <laughs> okay. Why does God send some people to hell? It was not because they were not among the elect. It's because they are sinners by nature and sinners by choice and deserve it. Now, here's the objection that Leighton Flowers made, and you're probably making as well if you're not reformed. I object, Pastor Sean. This cannot be by a sinner's choice if God from eternity past decreed for all things to come to pass. Because if that's the case, sinners are only doing what they were decreed by God to do. And they were born in a nature that they had no control over to do otherwise. So at the end of the day, they cannot or they must not be accountable or responsible for their sins, and therefore God cannot blame them for their sin if he decreed for them to be sinners in the first place and he ordained the fall. Again, that's the main argument that Leighton Flowers is presenting. And I would say it's a good understanding of an objection against Reformed theology. Now, what I'm going to present to you is what's called the infralapsarian position. There's supralapsarian, there's infralapsarian. Maybe you've not heard of these terms. Uh, it, it's Latin. Lapsarian it comes from the word lapse or fall. 
And it's how we in Reformed theology understand God's election before time in regards to his contemplation of the fall. And so the Westminster Confession, the Second London Baptist Confession, the Canons of Dort, I would make an argument all hold to an infralapsarian position. And so infralapsarian is the predominant view among Reformed theology. Now, there are some that hold to a supralapsarian. I hold more to an infralapsarian. And so let me just give you what that means. God does have an eternal and immutable decree. That's indisputable. God has an eternal and immutable decree. Job 23, 14. For he will complete what he appoints for me, And many such things are in his mind, but he is unchangeable. And who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. Great theology from Job. God is going to do what he's purposed. Why? Because he, in his essence, is unchangeable. If God, in his essence, is immutable or unchangeable, then what he does out of that nature is also immutable. And Job says, who can turn it back? What God desires, he's going to do. You can't thwart God's purposes. God created the universe out of nothing for his glory. God decreed the fall of Adam as our federal head, as well as original sin. God's decree views all people fallen in Adam where we are sinners by nature and choice. God predestined individual sinners to salvation as those who were not holy or blameless, but fallen in Adam. God left or passed over other individual sinners in that sin that they inherited from Adam and did not intervene in sovereign grace to overcome that sin, but will punish them for their sins. God has exhaustive and infallible foreknowledge. He either saw or foresaw or ordained who would and would not receive Christ. So therefore, creating or giving birth to these people he knew would reject Christ means that he created them anyway, knowing they would never come to faith and be in hell. Now, that's the important truth there. If you believe in God's exhaustive foreknowledge, let's say that you hold to the Arminian view of foreseen faith. So, God looks down the corridors of time and he sees those who will reject him. What does God do? God does nothing to intervene but leaves them in their state of misery and they freely choose to reject Christ and thus suffer in hell, even though God saw that they would not accept him. Now, in the Arminian view, what God could have done is God could have overcome what he saw and said, I don't like that. I don't like people rejecting me. I'm going to intervene, and I'm either going to cause them to believe in me, or I'm going to do something in them to make them believe in me because I don't want them to go to hell, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to leave them in a state of sin, and they're going to suffer justly. So either way you look at it, God is either ordaining some to salvation and others not, or God is allowing some to remain in their sin, and he's not intervening to overcome. So either way, God, because he has exhaustive foreknowledge, is either, you can call it allowing it to happen or ordaining it to happen, but either way, it doesn't get God off the hook. And listen to Lorraine Bettner. Lorraine Bettner in his um, Doctrine of Predestination book. He says, as a matter of fact, the Arminians do not escape any real difficulty here. 
For since they admit that God has foreknowledge of all things, they must explain why he creates those whom he foresees will lead sinful lives, reject the gospel, die impenitent, and suffer eternity in hell. The Arminians really have a more difficult problem here than do the Calvinists. For the Calvinists maintain that the ones whom God thus creates, knowing that they will be lost, and the non-elect who voluntarily choose sin and whose merited punishment God designs to manifest his justice, while the Arminians must say that God deliberately creates those whom he foresees will be such poor, miserable creatures that without serving any good purpose, they will bring destruction upon themselves and will spend eternity in hell in spite of the fact that God himself earnestly wishes to bring them to heaven and that God shall be forever grieved in seeing them where he wishes they were not. It's just a long quote explaining what I explained earlier about you can't get God off the hook. So let's talk about some scriptures here. Joshua eleven eighteen through 20. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel expect, except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. It was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts. Now, however you understand that issue of hardening of the hearts, you have a scripture verse where it was the Lord's doing. They had no libertarian free will in the issue. They could not have done otherwise. God did it so that they would come against Israel and that they would be destroyed. So God is working in the hearts of Israel's enemies to cause them to go to war and then punish them for something that God did. So you can look at that and say that's irrational. That does not sound intuitively right. Why would God devote them to destruction for something that he moved in their heart to do? If it was the Lord's doing and they had no choice and could not do otherwise and they did what God ordained for them to do and it was against God's will but he ordained for them to do it and then he punishes them for doing what God ordained for them to do, how can that be just? Who are you, a man, to talk back to God? You've got a passage of scripture there that teaches it. You've got to deal with it. Proverbs 16, 4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Now, one of the passages of Scripture that we often come to is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus, in Matthew 7, 23, says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. The question is in the never. I never knew you. This is in the aorist tense, which means that there was never a time when Jesus knew those who will stand on the day of judgment. Now, does this mean that Jesus never knew them at a point in time on earth in the sense that they never trusted him for salvation? Or does it mean that Jesus never knew them at a point in time in the sense that it goes back to the Father giving Jesus a people before the foundation of the world? He never knew them either through election or repentance or faith or from any time eternity past to that point in time, even going up to the future. The text doesn't say that the sinner never knew Jesus, but that Jesus never knew them. Matthew eleven twenty five to 26, at that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise understanding and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. God is purposely 
hiding things from people. Again, how you understand that, and again, Leighton Flowers may say that's, that's evidence of judicial hardening for a purpose in time. Either way, God is doing something in some people that he's not doing in other people. Let's think of it this way. God does some things for all people. He, he allows the rain to shine. I mean, the, the sun to shine, the, the crops to grow, the rain. God does some things for all people. But God does all things for some people, the elect. He brings about their salvation. And so no matter how you slice it, God is making a discrimination between those whom he chooses and those whom he leaves. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The word destined there means to appoint or ordain or assign. Why have we not been destined for wrath, but instead to obtain salvation? Well, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 5. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. What's the logical inference when we talk about these two passages in 1 Thessalonians? We can conclude that there are those who are destined for wrath. Why are there those that are destined for wrath? We're not destined for wrath because we're chosen. The reason that we're not destined for wrath is because we are chosen. But why are those others destined for wrath? The implication, they have not been chosen. What can we conclude so far? God has predestined individual sinners before the foundation of the world and given them to Jesus. The logical inference from this is that there are those who have not been predestined for salvation, but for condemnation. Now, let's just go to Romans 9, 10 through 22. And not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done anything either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is, is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Okay, that's Paul's, this is the first objection in this doctrine of, of unconditional election that the person's going to bring up. That's unjust. For God to choose someone for salvation and to call them, and it's not based upon their works or anything they've done, but simply because of God's good pleasure. For God to love or choose one and hate or not choose the other, that must be unjust. That's, that's intuitively not right. And what's Paul's answer? For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, so that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And so Paul's answer to the unjustness is, God has a sovereign prerogative to do what he wants. He can choose unconditionally those to be saved by his sovereign mercy and he can pass over or leave or harden others based upon his sovereign justice you can't argue with god it is not unjust god has the right to do that now you get to the second objection and the second objection is really the one that leighton flowers brought up in the in in this in this uh, presentation that he has verse 19 so you will say to me why does he still find fault 
or who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Okay, here's the second question. The first is, objection is, that's not fair. Paul, that's not fair. How can God choose some and not others? That's not fair. And, and God's answer through Paul is God can do what he wants to do. The second objection is the one that Leighton Flowers does. Well, then why is a person condemned? If God sovereignly chooses someone or God hardens someone or God passes over or God decrees for them to be in that state of sin and it's all of God's doing, then who can find fault? Who can resist his will? You, you can't change your condition. You can't do otherwise. And so therefore, God can't hold you accountable. God can't punish you. It would be unjust for God to punish you for something over which you have no control because you can't resist God's will. You can't change it. You, 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 you can say to God, well, you made me like this. I, 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 can't, I can't change it. You've or unchangeably ordained for me to be born with total inability, total inability. It's your choice. I could not do otherwise. And you're punishing me for something you ordained. Therefore, it's unjust. It's not right. It's intuitively not right. And Paul's answer is, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? That's his answer. He doesn't give much more explanation than that. Verse 20, why have you made me this way? And then he talks about vessels prepared for wrath. Did the vessels of wrath, quote unquote, prepare themselves over time? That's one view. The judicial hardening view that over time, these vessels became hardened and hardened. And then because of their own free will and rejecting God, they prepared themselves for wrath. They became hardened over time. They grew calloused. The other view is they were prepared in eternity past as part of God's sovereign decree. In other words, these were the reprobate. Now, what's the argument from Paul's flow of logic? Did Esau prepare himself over time, or was it before he was even born? Did Pharaoh prepare himself over time, or did God harden his heart and declare he was going to harden his heart even before the plagues? You go back to Exodus chapter 4, and God announces he's going to Harden Pharaoh's heart even before all these plagues happen. So some exegetes argue that the Greek verb for prepared here is in the middle voice, not the passive, which would be this reflexive, they prepared themselves over time. It was something they incurred upon themselves. They compounded their judgment by using their free will over time to be, to be um, hardened or calloused, and it would come through this ongoing unrepentance, and then therefore they put themselves in a position of destruction. They, they got what they deserved over time because they kept hardening themselves. They're earning destruction. They're bringing it upon themselves out of their own free will over time. Now, that, that, that is true. You do earn the wages of sin is death. If you continue in unrepentant sin, committing sins without the blood of Christ covering you through repentance and faith, yes, you are earning eternal condemnation. But in this particular pas passage, it's not that they were preparing themselves over time to be reprobate. It's that God sovereignly prepared them. It's in the passive voice. God is the one that actively prepared them for destruction. In other words, it was God's sovereign choice beforehand, before the foundation of the world, that they would be prepared for destruction. In other words, God in preterition, remember there's two aspects of reprobation. In preterition, God left them in the state that they were. God passed them over. 
And because they remained in the state that they were, they're responsible for their sin. They committed sins. They will be, secondly, condemned for their sins. And again, the argument is, well, they're only doing what God ordained for them to do. How can God hold them accountable? Paul says, who are you, a man, to talk back to God? That's the way God has ordained it to happen. So, let's give some cautions as we bring this to a close. God did not take innocent creatures, make them wicked, and then damn them. That's not what happened. God did not take innocent creatures, directly cause them to be wicked, and then damn them for directly being the the author of sin. Now again, God ordained the fall. Adam fell freely. The results of the fall were part of God's decree. God is not the author of sin in doing that. God does not compel or work sin into the non-elect. Again, that's, that's equal ultimacy. In the same way that God overcomes, sovereign, or God overcomes total depravity by sovereign regeneration in the elect, God works overtime in the non-elect to make them even more sinful and to infuse sin in them and then punish them for the sin that God is infusing in them. That's not what's happening. God leaves them in their fallen state as a result of Adam And in their fallen nature, that yes, God decreed that they could not do otherwise, they are in a state of rebellion. They are in a state of total depravity. They are in a state of total inability. God does not intervene to overcome that, but simply leaves them in that state that he decreed, that he ordained. He passes them over. He doesn't overcome that original sin. He doesn't overcome that spiritual deadness. He does not bring them to life and grant them repentance and faith. And again, Leighton's argument is that's not fair. That's unjust because God ordained for that fall to happen and God ordained for that condition and it's unjust for God to be punishing people for what he ordained to happen. Again, I've answered this multiple times. Romans 9 answers the question. Many passages in the Old Testament answer the question. God oftentimes ordains something to happen, causes something to happen that goes against his will, that brings about evil, that people act sinfully and then God judges them for the sin that he ordained for them to do. You just got to deal with what the scripture says because it teaches it all over the place. You can go back to Genesis 50, 20, where you talk about Joseph and his brothers. You can go back to Isaiah 10 and talk about the Assyrians. There's multiple places that I don't have time to go to where you find God ordaining something to happen that's sinful. People do that sinful action freely, even though God ordained it to happen, and then he holds them accountable and punishes them for that. And Paul's answer in Romans is, Who are you, old man, to talk back to God? It's his way of doing it, and you can't argue with it. So, those are fair arguments that Leighton Flowers makes against Reformed theology. I hope I've accurately portrayed his viewpoint and explained to you the doctrine of reprobation from a Reformed understanding. And the conclusion is this. It does not make God unjust, it is not irrational, and it's not intuitively just doesn't, f- it doesn't just feel right for God to sovereignly decree all things whatsoever come to pass, including the fall, including the effects of the fall, including our fallen nature, including total inability, and then for him to leave some in that natural state that he ordained, passing them over, not intervening to save them, and then for them to suffer the just consequences of that sin 
that God ordained to happen. God is not unjust in doing that. That is God's way of saving some, passing over others, predestinating some, reprobating others, and the Bible clearly teaches this, and hopefully this has been a way where I've been clear in what I've said, and I'm not trying to mislead anybody or, or be inconsistent. I'm just saying the Bible teaches it, and we need to deal with what the Scripture says. So hopefully this has been helpful to you. Again, um, I appreciate the ministry of Leighton Flowers and those in the Provisionist Camp. You guys keep me busy with podcasts to refute your theology, and I'm sure that you like to refute mine. So it's friendly dialogue, friendly fire. Uh, we love each other in Christ. We're brothers in Christ. Um, we can be cordial. I hope that I'm a compassionate Calvinist. I can defend the doctrines of grace without being a jerk, and um, I hope we can all do that as well. So let's all keep our eyes fixed on Jesus.